Hey, 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 beings. You are listening to the Self-Tivity Podcast. I am your host, Danny, your self-investment storyteller. Today's episode features a special guest who will be a valuable participant in our Being to Being Self-Tivity segments. The Being to Being segments are a fun way to connect with beings who are open-minded, enjoys thought-provoking questions, and perspective-shifting concepts. I also invite entrepreneurs and business owners who have a thought, product, or service that contributes to our self-investment journey in the areas of personal growth, mindset, well-being, entrepreneurship, and or financial empowerment. Guests will participate in our Being to Being activities bi-weekly, so be sure to follow so you don't miss out on all the fun. Let's find out who's on today and what self-tivity experience they will present to us. Are you ready? Because I am. Today, I am very, very excited because I have someone who's going to partner me on this experience. I have Rakim Sabri. He's a financial coach. He helps entrepreneurs optimize their finances by addressing traumas, beliefs, and the guilt surrounding money. He is the creator of the course, Improve Your Money Mindset, and I have him on today's show. I'm so very excited because he has an excellent story. Before we get started with today's show, would you please introduce your story? Tell us about yourself in your own words. Yeah, yeah. I, my uh, story is one of evolution. Yeah. And um, that evolution is rooted in empowerment. Um, and so what that means is I started off really kind of looking to improve my own positioning financially and realized that it was something that was missing for a lot of people, particularly people that look like me, that experience like me. So this started in the banking world. I worked in banking for a decade up until uh, last May of 2021, and then decided to take a leap of faith and pursue entrepreneurship full time. So I've been at it for, I think we're about eight months in, and it's been such a rewarding experience because I've been faced with really kind of reassessing what are my values and beliefs as it relates to showing up being my authentic self and helping others do the same. So financial empowerment is kind of the medium that I use to instigate these conversations, but certainly not the only way that I like to agitate thought, if you will. My topics are very broad. They include entrepreneurship. They include financial empowerment, financial literacy, spirituality, politics, you name it, I can probably tie some financial angle into it. I love it. I love it. And that is so embedded with the self-investing journey that I have here. And I want to share with people who may be um, a little unfamiliar, this is your first time. For, to me, the self-investing journey is twofold. It's really investing in yourself while you're also investing in the, the tools and the resources that we have in this land so that you can free up and be more creative. And so some of my topics are just things that I love to talk about and the people I like to connect with because that's a part of my creative being. And so I'll share a little bit of that. And I also love to get into the topic of finances, but this was a true gem because it's the same concept. It's that financial component. And then there's that showing up as yourself. So what I like to do is kind of get us in the groove with the game. And I explained a little bit to you before we started, but for those who are listening for the first time, this game is called Thought ER and it's the emergency room of your thoughts. And so each player that comes on has seven concepts. It might be just opinions, unpopular opinions. It could just be statements or random words that are related to their industry or philosophical in some nature. And so what I'll do is I will put a minute on the clock for each phrase and the guests will respond within a minute. And I will put up a little (laughs) indicator to them because they can see on the screen that they have 10 seconds left in that minute. And 
after there's seven are complete, then we'll go into a deeper discussion about it or we'll get into some other questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, awesome. So I am going to <laughs> probably should have my clock ready. I never have my clock ready. All right. So one minute on the clock. First phrase, NFTs. NFTs, they are disruptive and still relatively unknown, but I think there is a lot of potential there for exposure and growth. I believe I subscribe to Gary Vee's belief that one day everything will be an NFT, all contracts that um, interact with our lives, whether that's buying a car, buying a house, um, maybe getting a job. Um, and so really um, developing an awareness around NFTs in these early stages, particularly as people of color, um, is so paramount to what the potential for financial success can look like, because I don't think that they are going to be going anywhere. Certainly the pixelated images are trendy. They're a gimmick. Um, I don't think that that's always going to be present, but I do believe that the concept behind NFTs are going to be here to stay. All right. Awesome. All right. Next. Being poor is expensive. One minute on the clock. <laughs> I can speak to this from experience, um, having grown up and experiencing poverty and then even kind of bootstrapping my way through entrepreneurship since leaving my job. I realized that without regular income and the quote unquote financial security that comes with a regular paycheck, certain decisions are often made out of survival. And that can touch what we eat, what kind of exercise we do or don't do, who we go to see or don't see when we have a problem. So doctors, dentists, what have you, whether or not we have insurances, whether or not we're investing. And so um, being poor can certainly impact your future by robbing you of your future financially. Awesome. Next, the bank reorganizes your transactions in order to have you overdraft. One minute on the <laughs> I love this. So I work in banking for 10 years and the statement has some truth, but the bank does not force overdrafts. So the bank has what's called a prioritization of transaction types, which usually prioritizes credits over debit. So any kind of deposits are going to be prioritized over any kind of withdrawals, um, ACH transactions, which um, are basically like electronic transactions coming in or coming out and checks, which are not really used these days, but sometimes are. Um, and that posting order is what the prioritization is, can sometimes happen in a way that is not consistent with chronological order of transactions. And so a lot of people get caught because they don't know what's in their account. They don't know what's coming in. They don't know what's going out. And so they may be banking on, let's say I just bought gas yesterday, but the transaction was pending for three days at a dollar. And then finally it went in at 60. And so that is how people end up getting hit with the overdrafts. All right. Next one. Teaching young children financial literacy alone won't make a difference in how they use money in adulthood. Yes. So I believe this, particularly for young children of color, Black and Latino children, because there is an aspect of cultural competence that is not included in just basic financial literacy. There is an aspect of critical thinking that is not included in basic financial literacy. And there's an aspect of luck that's not acknowledged in basic financial literacy. So that's to say that you can have the literacy to do everything right, but a major situation occurs like an illness, a death in the family, some home emergency emergency, your car breaks down, um, anything really can happen. You lose your job. And if you don't know how to prepare mentally to navigate that situation, or you don't have an awareness of 
for instance, the stock market tank this week, if you don't have kind of like an understanding of what the markets look like and how to weather that storm despite those emergencies, well, then you're going to be worse off or in just as bad of a position as somebody who doesn't have the financial education. All right. Awesome. Next, being a co-signer for family members or friends. One minute on the clock. Uh, very dangerous behavior. I think sometimes it's necessary, but um, as a co-signer, you are assuming a responsibility for that behavior. Um, and, and usually it's a credit behavior. So if there are any delinquencies, any late payments, any abandoned um, interactions as it relates to those credit accounts, then you assume the responsibility for that negative credit rating and reporting. I don't advise that people do it unless it's a dire situation and the individual who is doing the co-signing is prepared to step in financially in the event of some kind of delinquency or um, financial issue. All right. Next, Black trauma and money. How do you respond? One minute on the clock. Black trauma and money are um, closely related. It's the work that I've been leaning into and focusing on helping to address how we view money, what we believe about money, and how we use money are ultimately impacted by traumas that extend back generations. I often reference a book by uh, Dr. Joy DeGroy called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome that talks about a lot of the way that Black people feel self-esteem related and how we behave navigating through the United States of America and certainly this capitalist society. The work that I do um, helps people to identify those traumas, helps people to work through those traumas, and helps people to make better money decisions after acknowledging that those traumas are there and how they work through it. All right. And last one, religion, spirituality, and money. Mm. One minute I don't talk about this often, but I think that money has a spiritual component. Um, there's a the spiritual representation that money has. And when you look at concepts like the law of attraction or manifesting or abundance, they have spiritual roots as well. And so I think a spiritually attuned individual is going to have a better relationship with money because they can acknowledge it in the unknown spaces that is spirituality in a different way than somebody who's looking at money purely as physical. Money is an idea. Um, it's an energy. It's a current. And so this collective belief that we have around the value of money, ultimately what gives it its actual value. And so when you look at the collective belief as applied to spirituality and how um, your spiritual relationship with money can ultimately impact your character, I think that there's a lot to be said about those relationships. Awesome. Awesome. Well done. Well done. And <laughs> yeah, I just thanks. want to share with the audience again, he does not know any of these before he comes on the show. But I will say <laughs> this time I scrolled through his Instagram page and some of these were his thoughts. Some of them were made up. <laughs> some of them were just topics that were around the topic of finances right now or trending topics around finances. And because you said you didn't talk about it often, I do want to lean into that last one a little bit religion, spirituality, and money, have you used any practices or concepts in that theme of spirituality and religion and money yourself? Because I know when you were saying it, the answer, you were pretty much kind of saying it about people, but you personally, have you used any of these practices surrounded around spirituality and money? Or if you're religious, do you use anything in a religious way as it relates to money? Does that make sense? It does. I think first and foremost, I want to acknowledge the um, often misquoted phrase from the Bible that money is the root of all evil, right? 
that's something I think that Black people in particular internalize as we kind of just spit fire that statement out. And despite it not being an accurate representation of the, the actual Bible quote, because we say it so much, I think we internalize guilt and fear uh, relating to acquiring money. We feel bad for having money or we suspect that somebody who does have money did something bad or immoral in order to do so. Like this whole idea of selling your soul to the devil for riches, right? And so I challenge, um, actually the first chapter of my book, Financially Irresponsible, I challenge that belief with another part of the Bible um, that speaks to the 10 talents in Matthew. And I didn't grow up Christian, but I know a lot of my readers would be so that it would resonate with them. But in Matthew, the 10 talents speaks to God giving, uh, I believe, three different men a talent or multiple talents and what those men did with those talents varied some maximized those talents and created um, more for themselves and one of them in particular buried their talent and that burying of the talent was trying to hoard it and embracing this idea of scarcity and god was furious took his talent away from him and gave it to the man that that grew his talents and so my argument in that is that it's our responsibility to be wealthy It's our responsibility to grow wealth so that we can be our best selves and so that we can do the things that we were put on this earth to do instead of just living in this hamster wheel-like existence of getting up, going to work, and basically going to work so that you can live. Outside of that, I'm more spiritual-based, so I'm not necessarily tied into any particular religion. I believe in multiple realities. I believe in the intersection of multiple realities. And so when I talk about money being a currency and, and there being some kind of spiritual alignment with money, I think about that in terms of how I manifest in this world. What are the things that I want to accomplish? I shared a tweet recently where I said I wrote myself a check for $10 million and I carry it with me, manifesting that for my future. So it's this idea of using focused will to create in this waking experience, if you will, in this reality that we subscribe to, what it is that you can conceptualize in your mind. So that's an example of something that I've done. There's also um, this idea of a money jar where I have a jar that I have little representations of money whether that is coins, dollars, whether that are items that are green or crystals that signify um, wealth or money or abundance. I have all consolidated into this one space to represent that money is going to be constantly drawn to me and opportunities to make money are going to constantly be drawn to me. And sometimes I think people look at abundance from the perspective of financial gain and not from the perspective of financial homeostasis, right? Or not going into a deficit. So the money that you save is abundance. The money that you're not spending on particular expenses is abundance. And so looking at money from that perspective, when you kind of add up and aggregate all of the cumulative savings and income that you make, that's like, that's true prosperity to me. So those are some of the practices that I use. Um, I talk in depth in my course about um, using the law of attraction properly and what to expect from it. I think a lot of people kind of romanticize this idea of, I'm going to create a vision board. I'm going to recite a mantra. I'm going to write down these affirmations. But when they're faced with the challenge that comes with bringing that into their reality, a lot of times they're not prepared for that. And um, the challenge that comes with bringing that into your reality very often is a test to see, do you want this and how bad do you actually want it? Yeah. 
So when you were speaking earlier, you mentioned that most of your audience may grow up in with Christian values and you didn't necessarily grow up in a Christian household. Would you speak to your upbringing and your relationship with money as it relates to how your parents introduced money to you? And if there was any upbringing in the religious nature um, that impacted how you are today? Or did you come up with having multiple avenues of spirituality in your adulthood? Or was that something that was a part of your upbringing? I like this question because it's unique. I've never been asked this before. So I'm like sitting here thinking about my answer as I'm hearing you formulate your question. And it's a combination of really all of the above, right? So there's certainly Christian influences in my upbringing, but I was raised Muslim. So I was raised in the religion of Islam. And Islam has um, five principles. It's the belief in one God, prayer, charity, fasting, and pilgrimage. So this idea of charity was something that was always kind of a value, giving, giving back giving to others. And charity doesn't necessarily have to look like monetary gift giving, right? Charity can be an act of service. Charity can be withholding negativity, right? If I'm in a situation where somebody insults me and I choose not to respond to their insult with another insult, and I choose to kind of walk away from that, I'm being charitable. And then this idea tied into fasting as well as a discipline that Muslims practice every year, once a year for 30 days, the holiday called Ramadan, where they abstain from food and drink, sexual pleasure, and any kind of negativity during really the, the totality of the 30 days, but especially while the, um, the sun is up. And so you can eat and drink when the sun goes down. So acts of charity during this period of time are seen as much more favorable in the eyes of God, according to the religion. And, you know, that's been a big part of my foundation as a person. Although I don't necessarily practice Islam in the way that I did growing up, I have a lot of the values instilled in me and my behaviors as I interact with others in this world. So charity is still very much something that I practice. If I see somebody that is homeless, I often feel bad and, you know, send my positive thoughts and vibes their way. If I have it on me to give, I'll give money. Um, and a lot of times I will go out of my way to buy a meal or a warm beverage, depending on the weather. So I think those influence money in my views of money from a kind of spiritual perspective or religious perspective, if you will. I found spirituality and I guess the broad nature that comes with spirituality outside of religion around the time I was 15 years old. 31 now, I'll be 32 in May. So for 15 years, I've been on this journey, really just kind of exploring different things, energies, the idea of different entities that interact with our existence on a day-to-day -day basis that maybe we don't know, the idea of um, celestial bodies interacting with the different occurrences that we have, different sciences relating to energy manipulation, magic tarot, uh, divination, all, you know, all sorts of things that are kind of like trendy right now in the world has been like my lived reality for the last almost 15 years. And um, I think that has a large part to play in how I embrace this idea of abundance, how I reject this idea of scarcity, uh, the confidence that I have in myself and my abilities to manifest the realities that I want in the world, and certainly the challenges that come with trying to maintain um, that kind of positive attitude or that kind of mindset in a world where most people don't embrace or truly embrace those concepts. So there's a disconnect a lot of times when I'm talking to people who they just believe that their existences 
just this physical world and you know what they do is what they do and there's no punishment there's no afterlife there's no karma there's no ripple effect and because of that i think a lot of people fall into becoming victims victims of circumstance victims of patterns victims of habits and don't really see through those patterns and those habits and those circumstances to say hey i can change my reality if i really focus and then follow up that focus with intentionality So what about your parents? Did they teach you certain concepts when you were younger that you were able to adopt into, you know, your adulthood? Or did you learn these things on your own? Combination, again. So my dad and my grandfather raised me as a Muslim. Uh, My mom, for a large part of my childhood, I didn't know that she wasn't Muslim. I thought that, you know, we all were. And uh, when my parents separated, my mom started to explore spirituality outside of the religion. And I witnessed that, you know, kind of a culture shock for me because I'm like, oh no, like in the Abrahamic religions, magic specifically is forbidden to be practiced. And so when it's taught to young children, it's taught as like, no, no, like you don't go near this. But what I find in a lot of the Abrahamic religions and that's Christianity, Judaism, and Islam is that magic is acknowledged, right? And so is the existence of other deities and gods but that there is a focus or emphasis on the one God of the Abrahamic religion. And there is a focus um, and emphasis on not practicing magic because magic is considered dark or black or devil worshiping, right? So you hear a lot of older, maybe Southern uh, black Christians talking about divination from the perspective, divination is like tarot, reading tarot, doing fortunes or anything like that from the perspective of, oh, that's the devil talking to you or you got the devil in you or the devil doing this devil doing that. So it was a combination. My grandfather in particular, he exposed me to different belief systems. And I'm sorry, I also wanted to include like the the practice of of your money and how you use money and your concepts about money as well from your childhood. uh, So that was tied into really kind of the information that I shared on charity and and fasting. Okay. I think that was, money was emphasized through that lens. Okay, I see. Um, But not necessarily was there a lesson given on spirituality and money and the, the intersecting of those relationships. And even, I mean, there wasn't really a lot of lessons given around money management. We didn't talk yeah, about money yeah. much in the house. My parents were young parents. I think they were trying to figure it out while having three children. And um, they did a good job, the best job that they could with what they had. But there was a lot that I didn't learn until I went out into the world, right? I didn't start becoming financially literate until I was 21 years old and I started working in banking. And then, you know, certain things clicked for me, right? Like my spiritual path intersected with my financial awareness. And I said, hey, ding, 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 like there's a relationship here. I think when you get to a certain level of awareness spiritually, that you start to see that everything is interconnected. Everything is entwined. You can kind of identify those relationships a lot easier. But there was no specific lessons around money and spirituality or money and religion outside of what I shared relating to charity. Yeah, I wanted to highlight that because we're talking about, you know, Black people and their relationship with money. And we can go to the sources that, you know, you grow up in a household and it's not really taught, but maybe there's a lot of stress around money. It could be, I can't get you these shoes this weekend because I don't have the money, you know, that kind of gets embedded in the child's mind. Or it could be, I want to go to school, right? I want to get into college, but there isn't a preparation for scholarships. So you don't have to have this debt. There is a conversation about, hey, you got to go to college, got to go to college and then go get this big amount of debt before you can even 
even be allowed to vote. And those are encouraged because we want to see our children and our households to be successful in this world, right? But the idea of financial literacy being in the Black household, and I can't speak for all households. I could just speak for the ones around me. I think there was a limitation. And even in households where I would expect, oh, they probably taught them financial responsibilities. It just wasn't there. Like in my experience, I think my mother was in the position to teach me and she started, but then there was the relationship between us that maybe the ball just dropped, right? And so I definitely wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit with you because I know that this is your thing. Like this is something that you talk about is, you know, financial literacy. And I always think that, you know, we kind of have, we draw our passions from experiences. So I just wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit to see if there was anything that you lacked and then you you found out when your adulthood say, hey, we all should know this, or if it was just that organic experience of going into banking and then leaving your job, which I want to talk about next. So how did you even get into banking? Did you have a passion? Did someone tell you about it? Or what was that journey like getting into banking in general? Yeah, I just want to touch on what you said just before, because I did have a thought and then I can answer your question. Um, my family talked about abstract concepts, or at least what seemed to be abstract concepts when I was a child, like doing for self, right? Entrepreneurship, group economics. Um, Kwanzaa was something, is something that we, we actively celebrate every year. And so one of the principles of Kwanzaa is cooperative economics. Self-determination is another principle. And so a lot of the principles of Kwanzaa that we celebrate over that seven-day period at the end of the year are lifelong lessons that can have and often do, um, when you look at it through the lens of financial education, have um, value in how you spend your money. But what was not talked about was the basics of what is traditionally considered financial literacy, right? How do you build credit? How do you create a budget? How do you save? How do you make money? It was all very like abstract, like, okay, this is what you should do when you have money. But when you're faced with a situation where you don't have any money, those lessons are kind of hard to stick. Yeah. I didn't see too many examples of having money. So it was like, okay, yeah, these are good things to have, you know, in my mind, in the back of my mind for later. But it wasn't like, okay, Rakim, you need to go out and make some money as an entrepreneur. This is something that you should do, or this is something that you can do, or this is something that I can teach you to do because you want these pair of sneakers, well, you need to go out and figure out a way to get the money to, to work for it. And so, like you said, there was conversations around, well, I don't have it right now, or um, we can't afford that. Or, you know, the infamous, you know, do you have McDonald's money? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, those kind of things, I think, reinforce scarcity. And parents don't realize the impact that those statements have on their children, that we view money, right? We're often taught to trade our time for money. And so even as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, what can I do per hour or per day so that I can get X, Y, Z dollars instead of how can I create a system that I can walk away from and still generate an income on a regular basis? And I think that culture shock is a culture shock that I'm still navigating, even as a professional in the space and learning how to have a business with systems that doesn't need me to show up every day. So there's that. As far as your question with banking, truly accidental, right? And I don't believe in coincidences. We talk a lot about spirituality. We talk a lot about intentionality. I think everything happens for a reason. But I had no intentions of going into banking 
prior to working in banking, my experience was mostly in retail and supermarkets. Okay. Um, so I did do some cashiering and, you know, very light sales stuff, but I needed a job very mm-hmm. quickly. I was new to Connecticut. I had just moved here and I was working at a supermarket, but I was getting paid like $8 an hour and I needed money. I wanted money. And so a friend of mine called me one day and he was like, have you ever thought about working in banking? And I'm like, not particularly. And he's like, well, I have a friend who works in banking and they're making a lot of money. And to us at that particular, I mean, I was 21, Mm -hmm. a lot of money was $11 an hour. (laughs) But um, I was just like, all right, like, yeah, I'll go for it. And so again, going back into this idea of spirituality, I set my intentions. I'm like, I want this job. This job is mine. Right. And it was like a full moon. And I was just like, I believe it was a full moon in October. And I was just like, I want that, like I have my crystals and everything. Like I was, I manifested that. And um, when I was interviewed for the role as a part-time teller, one of the questions that I was asked was, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Assessing myself being a manager. Mm. And I think that was the question that, or rather that was the answer that made the decision to hire. Like, okay, this guy is planning on being here for a while. Right. But more than him planning on being here for a while, he's planning on climbing the ladder. And that's what I did. Um, I had rapid growth in the organization. And I got my first promotion within the first five months of my employment. And then I got another promotion six months later. So I was very eager to learn and I was very eager to grow. What I realized in hindsight on the other end of 10 years is that I allowed that chase to influence me. I allowed that chase to sculpt and mold who it was that I was as a professional, the values that I had, how I showed up, what I said, how I talked, what I allowed people to know about me, what I allowed people to see on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tattoos and, you know, I was very adamant about making sure that tattoos were covered. I was told that, you know, I wore earrings at the time. I was told that wearing earrings to work was unprofessional. And so I stopped wearing earrings altogether. I just became super hyper-conscious of my brand and the way that it was being, my professional brand and the way that it was being shaped by corporate culture, which I don't think it's said often enough, is really white culture, right? Corporate culture, especially at levels of leadership, wasn't created with us in mind. And so when we infiltrate those spaces, or at least when we feel like we're infiltrating those spaces, there is kind of a forced assimilation that has to take place that makes me as a Black man have to appear less threatening, have to appear um, more of a team player, have to appear as somebody who's highly engaged. And talking about money traumas, I can pivot this into work traumas to say, you know, a lot of Black people are taught especially entering corporate spaces, that they have to do twice as much to get just as far or half as far. And so that was kind of not something that anybody in my family ever said to me, but it was something that I think I internalized somewhere along the line to saying, okay, I need to show up and I need to be early and I need to stay late and I needed to be engaged and I needed to go to these networking events and I needed to, you know, make sure that I was always on, that I could not have an off day. And that's a tremendous amount of pressure to carry, especially in your 20s. You know, I love that you highlight that it's something that Black people experience. And I always like to toy with this idea because you also said that it was something that you internalized. Do you feel like as a people, we've created these narratives in our head? Of course, there are things that are happening. 
we know we can't deny that they happen. But do you think that we create narratives in our head that continue us in this oppression when it comes to, you know, money or feeling like we have to be a certain way? Because I feel like we've come a long way where there's opportunity for us to eradicate all of these things that kind of hold us down, but we're doing more of it to ourselves because of our mindset or what is your take on that? Yeah. I want to be careful with how I answer that question. Because... Yeah. I was trying to be careful how I said it too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even so, okay. So let's talk about that, right? Yeah. Even the, the self-centering that we do, because let somebody hear us say it out of context. And then it's like, yeah. Oh my God, like you said this thing and you were completely wrong or you were completely right, but it was offensive to somebody listening. Right. Instead of just, I don't believe that many of my white peers have to go through that self-centering, mm-hmm. right. They get to say what they want to say. And that's just like, Oh, well, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Whereas we are doing the work proactively. Our f- rough draft or our first draft is very often their final copy. Right. And then we have to go back in and still make the tweaks afterwards. So I think the answer to your question is both yes and no. Um, The book that I mentioned by Dr. DeGroy, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, she talks about us Black people, Black American people. And I want to even like be very much more specific because there are Black people who are immigrants. Black American people who are immigrants, right, from different countries who came here willingly. I'm talking about the population of Black people in this country that did not come here willingly, Mm -hmm. who are descendants of people who were stolen and enslaved in this country, where we don't know our culture, we don't know our identity, we don't know the languages that we spoke or the religions that we practice or the customs that we had. And so in trying to establish identity for ourselves and in overcoming the traumas, both psychological and physical that we've experienced over the course of the existence of this country, a lot of times when we're put in positions that are, I'm going to use the term, on display, right? Whether we're a leader, whether we're an athlete, rapper, whether we're in government or what have you, I think the burden that we carry is that we are representative of everybody who came before us and everybody that will come after us. And so we think that, or we view the actions of a Black person in particular as representative of the entire population of us. And that's a pressure that I don't think, and Dr. DeGroy says in her book, does not exist in other ethnic groups. If white person goes and shoots up the school, all white people are not viewed as terrorists. It was that one kid had a problem. Mm. But if a black person goes and robs somebody, all black people are robbers or thugs. Mm-hmm. And so you and I were laughing off air about, uh, I will have my do-rag on. Yeah, yeah. And I was saying how I have been intentionally as of late leaving my house with my durag, going to meetings, having conversations with other people, um, going into white spaces in particular and observing their reaction to me because for the last 10 years, I have had to make sure that I showed up with my tie on and my button up and my suit and my jacket and to have this external view of what is considered professionalism lead in defining or um, allowing people to define what their perception of me is. And now that I've accomplished everything that I've accomplished, right? Multiple time author, TED speaker, you know, writing in publications, being featured all over the place. All of that credibility doesn't go down the drain because I'm wearing a do-rag. And so it's kind of like this act of rebellion that says, no, like I'm still me and you're going to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because I want to be comfortable in these spaces. 
Yeah. And it's not representative of everybody else that looks like me. And somebody who's committed a crime or who's done something terrible, who wore a do-rag, is not representative of me. Yeah. So definitely a deep question, heavy question. And I think, you know, again, going back to it, I think the answer is yes and no, because we have these self-imposed limitations around how we view ourselves in relation to the broader community of Black people. But our reactions, our traumas, or our trauma responses are not unwarranted. They come from trauma. They come from active aggressions against us, psychologically, physically, financially, spiritually, in every aspect of our experience. And learning how to heal from that is, I think, never-ending. It's a never-ending responsibility and job. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because even as a Black woman, I have to be conscious of the trauma that other Black people have experienced even with their relationship with me as another Black woman. And I'm working on this consistently to not hold it against people the way that they treat me. Because I would say, you know, how are Black people treating Black people this way? Or like, you know, why can't I be myself? Because, you know, the thing about me is that I don't like to connect myself to the color. I connect myself to who I am, like the being relationship, being to being is that. I feel like the the fact that we even label ourselves as colors is part of the culture cultural divisions that we create, the system divisions that we create, like is these stories. Like for instance, if I could paint a picture, I just see a white man and someone from some entity whispering in that white man's ear that all black people are bad. And then I see a black person and I see some entity whispering in that ear that all white people are bad, right? But one had the better end of the stick, right? But they are experiencing something that's ambiguous, some story that someone told and they were all interacting with that. And so I try to be conscious of that when I'm interacting because I grew up in two separate places where I was around a lot of white people, right? And so some of my characteristics might be to a black person might be like, oh, you like act white or something like that. And I'm just like, what? I don't see that because I feel like, you know, to white people, I'm black, <laughs> you know, I'm a black person because I, I also experienced like when you talk about the do-rag, I wanted to share the story real quick. I'm not trying to talk too much because it's just your time, but <laughs> I have locks in my hair. If, but I don't know many people have seen my locks, but it used to be this thing where I worked for a black man and for a long time, which was like an awesome thing to me to be working for a black man. And he worked in a very corporate space. And I would say like, he wanted me to do like some type of work where I was talking to like white men all the time. And I was just thinking like, is this okay? Cause I have locks in my hair. And I was like, I have a, a nose ring in my nose. And I was like, I don't think I could do that. And I used to always feel like just talking to anybody that's white or corporate, that it would just be this limitation, right? Like that I would just shrink myself without even having the experience yet. I kept telling myself all these lies and these stories just because of what I thought. But I recently have just found all this boldness like I'm just gonna be myself whether you know the community has who has the same color as me thinks I'm weird or the community thinks that I'm not professional enough that's my goal we have that saying life liberty and a pursuit of happiness I just really want to be a walking black woman who actually was able to have life create experiences of happiness I forgot I just messed it up life liberty yeah create liberty and pursue happiness just by being happy you know yeah. just creating those experiences without it being attached to so many political things and I I think you know, we have to be aware of that, right? We have to be aware that there are some wicked things that happen here in this land. 
But how do we get to the point where we know everything that's happened and move us to a position where what if our mind was like the most valuable asset and we keep getting our mind caught up in things that really won't push us to where we actually want to be? And we kind of consciously stay in this slave type mindset with all of the things that we do. Anyway, going into this. I think, well, yeah, I don't want you to minimize what you just said. I think everything that you said has value and I think in a perfect world, and we live in a far from perfect world, that would be ideal. But I think it's a delicate balancing act, too, of being yourself, right? Because then the question is asked, well, who are you, right? And how do you determine who you are? Uh, You are the collection of experiences and interactions that you've had with other people. And so if some of those people were white people, well, then that's an influence on how you express and present to the world. And I think that question should be asked of all Black people. Who are you? And yeah. what are the experiences that shaped you, that you like literally experienced, but what are the experiences that shaped you before you even came into being on this planet? And then the second thing is not pretending that the past didn't happen, right? Like I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of progressive white and black people who want to just kind of say, yeah, those atrocities in this country happened. And in some places, most places, all places in this country can still happen, but that's not how everybody's thinking. And as I get older, maybe I get more jaded, yeah. but I think it's not as simple as just we're going to remove color from the equation because mm-hmm. today it doesn't matter how much of myself I want to be. If somebody sees me walking down the street with a do-rag and a black hoodie on, which you know, I happen to be wearing today, <laughs> they're going to come up with a perception in their mind about who I am and about what I'm capable of. But should we believe their story? Like there's someone who's always going to have a story about who we are. And I, which I think in my perspective, I feel like there's always somebody creating the story and it's really none of my business, right? Like unless they come to me and intentionally do something, I'm literally thinking that I have to limit who I am because of what someone may be thinking about me, right? And I feel like going in the opposite direction or even testing or experimenting, going in the opposite direction of like, what if I truly just showed up as myself? Like what if I just truly just came with this do-rag and somebody was able to connect with me because not only was he wearing a do-rag, but he also was saying something that could be helpful for me and he was able to do it you know and I think that's what's happened is that we haven't been showing up as ourselves so people can connect who haven't been able to show up as their selves yet right to be able to connect with someone like oh they're showing up as their full self right and there's no doubt like there's I was still having in the back of my mind like man that white man right like (laughs) like one day I was walking into the grocery store and it was like who's gonna go in line first me or you right and like I always used to let these people just go before me or just walk past me I would be the one that moving and I was like let me practice something different why do I have to move every time why can't I be the one that go first you know and and I feel like just those little we talked about earlier those practices those rituals it's like really those things that we start to implement in our lives like it starts to move in a spiritual way because I feel like all of this chaos and this crap that's happening in this world is not something that we can really handle in a logical way it really has to be a spiritual type of movement but I agree the toxic work environment I know you talked about that in some of your posts was the toxic work environment connected to the fact that you couldn't be yourself or was it related to people like being crazy towards you can you explain your toxic work environment a little bit with me i think again my answer would be a combination of both i didn't realize that i wasn't being myself because and i think that's why i feel so strongly about this topic i'm going back to asking like who are you yeah yeah yeah. but more than who are you like who do you want to be right because that's two different things too Mm -hmm. and 
who I was and who I wanted to be was the person that I was showing up as every day at work. But that was influenced by what I internalized subconsciously about what it meant to be professional, what it meant to be, I guess, uh, advancing quickly in a company, and what it meant to be a Black man who was kind of the face of what that advancement looked like. Yeah. So I was, for all practical intents and purposes, happy for a long time working because I was just like, I constantly get the promotion. I constantly get the raise. I'm being able to affect change, influence minds outside of the workplace and in my community, encouraging people to, you know, understand and practice financial literacy. And I was building. I bought a house. I developed my credit. I was able to go out and get virtually whatever it is that I wanted. But all of that success financially and even within my job did not prevent me from being impacted by decisions that were made about, like you said, the story other people had in their minds about me. So that was one part of it. Uh, So I code switched like hell, right? Like I would be in work environments where my peers, my white peers would openly swear I often did not swear. If a swear was to slip out, I was very conscious of the fact that a swear slipped out. I didn't get loud. I didn't get reactionary. I didn't get emotional because I didn't feel like I had the luxury of being able to do that. And I didn't realize that these were like self-imposed limitations on how it was that I was able to express myself. And then the worst thing that could happen did happen. And that was that those behaviors from the perspective of restraint were celebrated as attributes of who I was, right? So I was known as being the guy who was very diplomatic, who was an effective communicator, who um, was always on point. But I had to be those things. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be those things. If somebody said something that was crazy, I couldn't be like, yo, like, what the F? You know what I'm saying? It's like, ooh. Or how do I address this in a way that makes me not seem like non-threat? There were very few instances where I would put bass in my voice and I would get firm on things and I would see the shrinking of particularly women, middle-aged white women who were leaders of mine. They're shrinking like, oh, I pissed him off. Like, he's getting ready to go crazy. But then it was like, okay, he's getting ready to go crazy. Like, how do we how do we get him there again? Like, almost kind of like some sick game. And so the second part of your question, or rather the second variable that you introduced was, yeah, I was being harassed. And it really, it wasn't that I was being harassed because I was Black, right? It was I was being harassed because I was ambitious mm-hmm. and because I felt empowered to make moves and decisions for myself that did not necessarily align with what the story they had about me mm-hmm. was within that company. Yeah. The Every single time that I had an issue in my corporate spaces was related to me wanting more than what they were prepared to give me. Yeah. And me making decisions to say, okay, you're not prepared to give me what it is that I'm looking for. I'm going to go somewhere else and get it. Mm-hmm. So I started doing TED Talks and writing books and writing articles and being featured in publications and speaking at conferences. The question kept coming up. Why? Why are you doing this? Yeah. What is your intentions? Mm-hmm. Are you using us as a stepping stone? When do you have time to do this? What do you actually do while you're here? And so now all of a sudden this work that I was celebrated for doing and meeting expectations and exceeding expectations came into question because how could I, a millennial Black man, have the time and the capacity to do all of these great things that many of them have not even come close to thinking about doing? 
right? And their 20, 40 years of working experience, how could I do those things and still be so good at my job? Mm. And so I felt like I was put in a situation where I had to choose between the two. And there was no question for me, right? The income was great. It was one, it was something that I was very proud of. But it was also like, do I kill my dreams or allow my dreams to be killed because it makes somebody else comfortable? Absolutely not. So you were experiencing these TED Talks while you were still working for the bank? Was it? Yeah. I um so I left my job in May of 2021. I delivered my TED Talk in December of 2019. I published my second book, December of 2019. I published my first book in, I think, August of 2018. And then 2020 for me was like the year of media. I was featured in Black Enterprise. I started writing for The Grio. I was featured in Business Insider. I was featured in Entrepreneur. I started writing for Entrepreneur. And I was invited to speak at a conference. And I would share these things on social media because I was building my personal brand. And I'm like, hey, like, look at me. I have these talents. I could speak, I could write, I could communicate effectively. And um, it was just like, whoa. My manager, I'll never forget this. My manager, before I left my job, she said to me, well, you don't have any skills. Wow. And I said, wow, I do have skills. I don't have skills that you're using, but I have skills. And then, you know, she very quickly retracted her statement. She's like, well, what I meant to say was, and I'm like, oh, you said what you meant to say. Mm-hmm. Right? But I corrected you. <laughs> <That's> what- <laughs> I corrected. I have skills. You just don't know how to manage me and the skills that I have. And that's what the problem was. They, she didn't know what to do with me. So what were your topics? Because it wasn't about leaving your job at this point in entrepreneurship. Mm. What were your topics centered around before you left your job? Like, were you just teaching financial empowerment? Okay. And so were these invitations that came to you or did you seek these out? Like you were just finding a passion within yourself while you were working there and started to look for ways that you can experience those? Absolutely. It was a combination of both. So like my first book was on mentoring. Okay. Second book was on financial empowerment. The TED Talk was on financial empowerment. As I was building my brand as kind of like a thought leader in the personal finance space, that was really kind of where I blossomed as a leader, as a coach, as an author. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of my time trying, not trying, but successfully tying in pop culture and just really everything, any topic into personal finance. And I was celebrated for that. I love it. So there's a point in time where, you know, I'm looking through all of your information and you spoke about being misrepresented, misrepresented in an article. Yeah. Um, you, um, a reporter um, misrepresented you. I'm sorry, yeah. I keep saying that over and over again. I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but you know what I'm, what I'm referring to. Someone misrepresented you. Could you talk about that story? Because there was no link at that time that I seen it <laughs> for you. To- sure. Yeah. So um, after I left my job, well, at the same time I left my job, I tweeted it okay. and didn't expect it to go anywhere. But my tweet went viral, got like over 2.2 million impressions. And a lot of people were congratulating me. A lot of people were celebrating just like, oh, you have so much bravery or, you know, welcome to the other side. Right. Stick it to the man. <laughs> and I said that I left because of my mental health. Right. I was I, I was like every day anxious, every day angry, every day feeling less like myself. And, um, you know, some people would describe me leaving as like a rage quit, but it wasn't a rage quit because I had planned it. I had planned it for several weeks before I finally made the decision. I I was just fed up. I um, tried to warn my manager and letting her know that, look, I'm not engaged right now. This is how you engage me. And this is how you alienate me. And this is what will happen if I become alienated and disengaged. And I wasn't taken seriously. And um, when that went viral, I wrote an article for Business Insider about my experience leaving. And it was 
happened to coincide with the pandemic and what was referred to as the Great Resignation. So it was a hot topic. And a reporter from the New York Post went on my website, filled out the um, the contact me section and was like, hey, I'm writing a story on the Great Resignation. I would love to interview you as a part of it if you're open to it. And I was like, sure. So we get on the phone and basically she represented the intent of the article to be celebrating my decision to leave my job. Okay. I mean, went as I mean, she really did a job with this lie. Went as far as to tell me that they were going to send out a camera crew to photograph a picture of me and my dog, mm-hmm. and that they were going to. And she's like, maybe this will get you some business. Okay. So we're going to include like what it was that I was focusing on, which was the financial coaching. And um, the article publishes, and the only reason why I know that the article publishes because she didn't ever get back to me was I have a Google alert for my name. Okay. So when my name is mentioned in the media, I get an email okay. and my name was mentioned in the New York Post. So of course I got the email and I'm looking at it and it was just like a very brief blurb from the entire interview that we had where it talked about, it even used words that I didn't use, talked about me leaving my job very rapidly without giving notice and then goes on to highlight some career coaches and other professionals basically giving advice that contradict what I did. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, well, if I knew that that was the intention or the intended direction of the article, I would have declined the interview. Mm. But like I said, she misrepresented how she was going to tell this story and then did not include any links to my website, my social media, my book, my um, practice, like nothing. But ironically included links to these other professionals, books, practices, mm-hmm. credentials, or what have you. So it definitely left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't know that the New York Post had a reputation for doing stuff like that until after the fact. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a learning experience for sure. But yeah, definitely misrepresented. And it creates a lot of dialogue for people to have uh, negative feedback on my decision, mm-hmm. my decision to pursue my happiness. That's crazy in itself, though. (laughs) I just find it very interesting, you know, people's opinions. And I always like to say here, like anyone who's listening, I like to use concepts related to finances and you don't have to have stock in any thought that was here today. Hopefully there's a return on the investment of the time you spent here, you know, that you learn a little bit and you can take it in your life, but you also should, you know, have ownership, you know, ownership in what you allow to be in your mind, what you allow to influence you in your journey. And if anything, if something doesn't add value to you, you just don't put stock into it, right? There's no reason why someone should have any <laughs> negative experience about negative impact about you leaving. But I do have this one um, last question before I, before I let you go. I know we've been here for a long time, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I do want to kind of get into the other side, entrepreneurship. And there's two things I want to talk about. One is a quote that you have on your page about entrepreneurship. And is that sometimes entrepreneurship, sometimes is spending a whole lot of money learning that you didn't need to learn a thing. And mm. I wanted to, wanted you to dig into that a little bit because I feel like with entrepreneurship, there is the great um, resignation. People are quitting their jobs and it's still something that you have to be mindful about when you go on that journey of entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship has also been, you got to love it. You got to love what you do. 
you have to do it for the right reasons. And that's how it sticks, right? But I want to talk to you about this because that line hit with me because I was just like, I would be buying these courses, buying these courses. No, just be like, no, no, no. To me, I feel like if you know that you're serious about something, if you can invest a lot of time in doing research for yourself and then get to the point where you have these questions, these spaces where I don't know what this is. I need someone to kind of coach me in the right direction. But you really should be spending a lot of time and, and putting in that investment of your own time before just buying a course and think it's going to be a magic pill. But um, talk about the other side. You're in entrepreneurship, the good, the bad, um, and any lessons you want to share with those listening. Yeah, I, let me just kind of think as I'm listening to your question play out. I don't know that I would say that anything's bad, right? I love that this conversation has come full circle, right? We talked about spirituality. We talked about money. We talked about mindset. We talked about entrepreneurship. And I think all of those things intersect. Entrepreneurship for me has been a journey of self-discovery, figuring out who it is that I am and who it is that I want to be, what works, what doesn't work. Do I have the resilience, right? So I talked a little bit about the law of attraction earlier, right? I asked the universe for this, Mm -hmm. right? I wanted to be free. And freedom is not free, right? There's a cost. Mm -hmm. And that cost for me has been, you know, navigating uncertainty. It has been navigating some months, no income and figuring out like, how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to buy my dog's food? How am I going to buy me food, right? Mm. Um, How do I prioritize the money that is coming in when I need every penny of it? So, you know, there are definitely days where I wake up and I'm anxious. There's like anxiety about my survival, my existence, like, oh, how am I going to make it to the next day? And then there's days that I wake up where it's just so full of abundance, like everything hit at once. There was a day, maybe a couple of weeks ago, where a reporter from money.com reached out to me, a reporter from the New York Times reached out to me, a teacher reached out to me saying that they wanted to buy a class out of my book. There were just like so many money opportunities that just hit at the same time. And I'm like, oh, shoot. If I would have gave up yesterday when I was feeling bad, then I wouldn't have these opportunities. So I feel like the universe is saying, okay, you wanted this, Rakim? How bad do you want it? How long are you going to stick it out to make this thing work? Because it, it would be easy for me to just go get another job. Yeah, for sure. It would be easy for me to just go apply and say, hey, like, I made this big deal about how I fired my boss, but listen, I need a job. So whatever it is that you want, I'm going to do. Yeah. And um, I don't want to like turn this into a political discussion. And I know there are a lot of people who are on you know either side of the fence when it comes to the vaccine and the vaccine mandates. But a big, you know, Biden made that executive order that forced private employers of over 100 employees to require that their employees had a vaccine. And I just, I don't believe in giving up body autonomy. So if I was still working for an organization, I would have had to cross the bridge of making a decision to get the vaccine or have my job. And I've seen so many people either leave or get fired or be threatened to lose their job because they didn't want to get the vaccine. And a lot of people I know personally who did not want to get the vaccine, but got it anyway because they wanted to keep working. And that's not a problem that I've had. So that's like the good, right? Freedom to choose, freedom of time, freedom to try different things out. Like, you know, some things work, some things don't work. The quote that you um, specifically referenced in terms of figuring out that a lot of the things that you spend money on, you don't necessarily need to. I bought into master classes. I've paid coaches. I've paid agencies promising me three times returns on my money. And I'm just like, oh, 
that didn't work. I can't hold them accountable because I've already paid them. And it's just like, well, it didn't work because of this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me that that was an option, right? In the beginning, you just made it seem like this was going to work. And so my word of advice, I guess, for um, new entrepreneurs is to be wary of salespeople. And I sell, right? I sell my course. I sell coaching. I sell, you know, one-on-one time. So I'm being very, very transparent and, you know, maybe taking food out of my mouth by saying this, right? But not everybody's product or service is something that you need to spend money on. And it's not necessarily something that you need to spend money on right now. You might be able to kind of figure it out and work with an unfinished version of your product until you get to the level where it's like, okay, now I need to level up. I need to upgrade. Let me spend some dollars to like polish this up a little bit. So, um, I, you know, fine line between investing in yourself and investing in somebody else's product or service under the guise of investing in yourself. And that level of discernment, I think you just kind of figure out over time because I would never tell somebody not to buy a book, not to buy a course, not to hire a coach. But some people are not mentally there yet to really kind of execute on the thing that they're spending the money on. And then the other side of it is, Some of these products, services, agencies, coaches are not qualified to handle that person in their business. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you sharing that. And I just want to to share with people how, you know, I was inspired to reach out to you because my goal here is to connect with entrepreneurs and just other beings who have a thought or a product or service that I, from what I can gather, is self-investing. It can impact someone's self-investment journey. And that can be different for anyone. It could be your financial investment, your financial well-being. It could be your spiritual well-being, connecting with, you know, life coaches, dream interpreters, you know, um, anything of that nature. And it can also just be, hey, someone can help you with your marketing in a, a positive way. Someone can help you with your book design. And so I reached out to you, Rakim, because I love your message. It's really aligned with, you know, what I hope to share in the world. And I want you in your own words to share how your product is a self-investing product. And what I mean by that, does it contribute to someone's health in a way? Does it contribute to their well-being, who they are as a person? Does it contribute to their mindset, their financial well-being in any type of way? It doesn't have to be all three, um, but those are the tiers that I use. And I always like people to share, how is your product um, self-investing for someone instead of it just being something? And that's what I want people to sell, right? I want people to sell their credibility, why right. someone should choose you and not a sales way, but like, because this is for you and I'm going to help you on your journey. So if you can just share that, um, that would be lovely. Yeah, I hate the term sales. And I know that that's just business where everybody's selling all day, right? You're talking about yourself, your credibility, talking about your expertise. But truly, all the work that I create and put out there is the sharing of my experiences, right? And so I'm monetizing the sharing of my experiences, whether that's my book, whether that's my course, whether that's coaching, right? And saying, this is what I've gone through. And this is what I've accomplished and learned along the way. And this thing may be able to help you figure out your path too. My course specifically talks about money mindset, but I don't talk about money necessarily. I talk about a lot of things that we talked about in this conversation. I talk about overcoming fear and using it as an ally. I talk about the law of attraction and the other side of what that looks like. I talk about scarcity and a poverty mindset. I talk about uh, what is your relationship with money. And so the intention behind the course is to really help people change their mindset so that when they do go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or The Millionaire Next Door or hire a coach, uh, hopefully me, that they're prepared mentally to go into this 
with the right mindset instead of just saying, okay, yeah, I could teach you how to build your credit from a 550 to a 780. Or yeah, I can charge you money to teach you how to budget and invest in real estate. But like, if you're not prepared or the stories, I love that, how you phrased it earlier, the stories that you believe about yourself are not consistent with the goals that you have for yourself financially. It doesn't matter the amount of courses that you buy, the books you read, the people that you surround yourself with, because you'll never execute. So um, I think as, you know, in full transparency, one of the things that I struggle with as an entrepreneur selling my knowledge is that a lot of people want what's going to be like popcorn, right? Put it in the microwave, you pull it out, you get to start eating. Yeah. Where I'm selling the deeper work and it's not tied into a tangible product or a tangible result because that tangible result is based off of the work that you do. And so when people arrive to the point where they say, okay, I'm ready to take things to the next level, well, then my stuff is here for you. But until then, my struggle in um, entrepreneurship has been to how do I keep showing up so that people know when I'm re- when they're ready that they can come to me instead of going around chasing sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate what you are doing out in these internet streets. And I know for sure in your actual streets of being just who you are. And I encourage you um, to continue to be who you are. Put your do-rag on when you want to, you know, and don't allow people's other stories, like we said before, to put limitations on that. You know, it's a sparkle, right? It, it stands out, and, you know, and I don't know why we create stories about how others' hair should be or what they have on, but we can get to a point where it looks just elementary like why do you care that much about it i think it would help us um, walk into that and, and i'm speaking to myself more so because i i do that sometimes um with just other attributes of myself but it's a journey right and i appreciate you being on this journey with me i appreciate everyone who's listened this was such a great conversation i definitely got a return on the investment of time with Mark Kim. i appreciate him being here and his presence and i hope that you guys can all connect with him before i let him go i would love for him to share his self-tivity statement before you say your self-tivity statement don't forget to um share how people can connect with you your handles everywhere your website and then if you can just close it out with a self-tivity statement that would be phenomenal. Yeah, so I, I make it very easy. Everywhere um, is at my name, Rakim Sabri. So it's R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever. Whatever the, the site name backslash Rakim Sabri. And um, my self-tivity statement is I am wealthy and I examine my financial traumas daily. Ooh, yes. absolutely yes i am here for it thank you so much i really appreciate you sharing your self-tivity statement being here being you and having something that is actually contributing to our land for everyone until next time hold on to you as much as you can hold on to your health your being and your mind be mindful bye 